The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Jeb's on the road this week. He's attending an annual conference where they make him wear a tie, but we're going to let him into the hangar anyways. James is back again, standing up for Mooney pilots everywhere, and to tell us about his visit to a recent event where they probably made him wear a tie too. We'll answer more listener mail, cheer for a not-so-young eagle, and learn how aviation is not like getting a tooth pulled. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 29, The First Power Reduction. I feel like there's a truck coming blindsided at me. Right. <laughs> because there's a truck coming blindsiding. Blindsided at me, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome, yeah, folks. Time. Welcome, folks. Welcome to episode number 29 of Uncontrolled Airspace. And, 29. Uh, this 29, really. Isn't that amazing? 29. Yeah, well, but, you Don't know, trust anybody over 30. That's right. That's right. This could be episode 29A, time will tell. Uh, <laughs> we're running on a highly jury- 25 more possibilities coming. We're running on a highly jury-rigged setup here today uh, uh, in the virtual hangar uh, with uh, backup computers and alternate uh, conference call hubs, and oh my goodness, it's quite an adventure here. Thund- thunderstorms in Boston. And, and-, and monster, you know, r- dark, deep red radar return thunderstorms right over my head up here in Boston. And, uh, wow. So- that's a four-point alliteration score. That's right. <laughs> so what, what do you we, get in, what's the Scrabble score for that? I know. So for all we know, we could have a we could have just a good old plain vanilla mundane power failure here, which would mess this up. Forget high technology. But, talk among uh, yourselves, guys. Yeah, talk among yourselves. Anyways, hanging out with me here today in the virtual hangar, uh, f- uh, talking to us from Springfield, Virginia, where I don't think it's no, raining. Jeb Burnside. No, I, Jeb. I am not in Springfield. Well, that's right. You're not in Springfield. I forgot about that. Where are, well, you're, Jeb is a uh, freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. And you're on the road today. That's one aspect of the weird technology here. Where are I'm you? On, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. I see. And, uh, ah, very Scottsdale. Very nice place to be. Are you able yeah. to share with us some sort of uh, uh, idea of why you're out there? Or I, it... I am here one, among my many other uh, talents and uh, 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 ways to make money. <laughs> uh, such as they are. Such as they are. Uh, I have a client, a uh, small aviation trade association, that's having their annual meeting out here. Yeah, okay. And uh, we're uh, kind of... I bet they do that every year. They, they do that every year. That's why it's, it's called an annual meeting. And uh, I'm out here uh, supporting that, and I've got a small presentation to make tomorrow morning, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh-huh. And so, are you at liberty to disclose what sort of trade association? Oh, sure, maybe? sure. This is the Regional Air Cargo Carriers Association, uh, RACA, huh. as it's known, um, which is uh, basically um, small, short, short route, on-demand package express operators. Interesting. Uh, uh, would hesitate to characterize them as the traditional freight dog because it's a lot more sophisticated than that and, and, and uh, continues to grow in sophistication. But um, 
uh, it, it's it's to me it's one of the last real frontiers in this industry that uh, uh, still finds uh, a single pilot flying an airplane uh, for money uh, in bad weather at all times of day and night. I see. Mm. And so, are they making uh, you wear a necktie? Absolutely. Oh man, sorry to hear it. Yeah, me too. Also with us today in the virtual hangar is uh, our friend Dave Higdon. Dave is talking to us from, you are in Wichita, Kansas, right? <laughs> I are in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> and Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. How you doing, David? Good day, all. Good day, all. I hope somebody's getting some air time in today, because I'm not. I was talking to a, a new friend of mine up here in the greater Boston area who is a student pilot, and uh, we, were, he, we were talking about the podcast. It was kind of gratifying that he had discovered the podcast before I met him, and uh, and he was quite impressed that I knew someone who worked with Kit Planes magazine. He said uh, he said that's one of the highlights of his month is when he gets to you know, when he gets his new Kit Planes magazine. So, oh, very cool. Uh, so, Tell uh, the checks in the mail. So that's right. So, <laughs> that's mail, right. So, so I was able to I'd like benefit to find from, one of those at least once a month. I was able to benefit from your reflected glory. And finally, <laughs> also with us. <laughs> and also with us this this week in the uh, in the virtual hangar is James Winbrandt. James is uh, still down at his winter quarters in St. Augustine, Florida. James is uh, long after winter was over. Yeah, it's great to be uh, always great to take a seat on the couch here in the virtual hangar and I am down here for just a little less than two weeks, so back home after this. Yeah. Now, James, is a, as I've said before, is, a, is an author, an aviation journalist, and a musician. And I want to come back to that author thing in a second here. Uh, but first, I am Jack Hodgson, up here in stormy Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a private pilot. He remembered. A freelance writer and a new media producer. I have it like a big box drawn around it in the, uh, in the notes that I read from, so I won't forget to introduce myself. <laughs> now, I refer to all of us as writers and editors and journalists, but I refer to James as an author. And that because, to me, that means he writes writes books, right? And I mean, among other, he writes regular, you know, uh, a magazine and, and uh, periodical things like we do, but he also Let's writes see, books. see, he's written a book about the history of dentistry. And that's what I want to know about. about the, but, you know, the, uh, it's the, the dentistry book I want to hear about. Give us, give us like, give us a minute and a half on the dentistry book. What's this all about? Well, the title is The Excruciating History of Dentistry, and it takes a look back at this art-slash-science as it has been practiced and malpracticed since time immemorial. And all I can say, guys, is thank God we live in the days of anesthetics, because what used to happen, and, and, and believe me, I knew none of this before I started this project, uh, what used to happen, you took your life in your hands when you went to the predecessors of what are dentists today, what used to be the tooth drawer, which were typically charlatans and con artists who would make the rounds of towns during market days, and people really had nothing that they could go to, nowhere to go to, no palliative help if they had some sort of abscess or something, so they would uh, allow themselves to kind of be worked on in open-air forums by these tooth drawers, and often uh, their jaws would be broken, sepsis would set in, and essentially they could die from the administrations, not just kind of be in the awful kind of pain that we associate with, with uh, a bad tooth problem. So they, again, uh, it was a mess, and it started to change when anesthetics were first discovered, which is uh, a quite a story of itself. And uh, so, so, so it. 
It's not. Uh, it's not really your basic coffee table book, is what you're saying. No. Maybe next time you visit us, we'll we'll look in on one of your other offbeat book titles. But that one's always intrigued me. And now that you've told me about it, sorry, I don't need to buy that book, James. I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's amusing and fascinating. But uh, and, and also in a way, if you think you have a bad toothache, this will make you feel a lot better about yeah, it. Right. <laughs> All right, aviation stuff. What's Moving going right on? Along. Last week we uh, we may well have confused people about the date of the International Young Eagles Day. Dave, you want to clarify this or June 9th. June 9th. June 9th is correct. So if yeah, you're, we uh, shouldn't even repeat the wrong date. We yeah, should well. do it like the newspapers said. The right date, June 9th. Still plenty of time to to uh, volunteer with your local EAA group or your non-local EAA group. After all, you got an airplane. You know what's flying right. 50, 75, 100 miles to uh, help introduce a bunch of kids. So June 9th, and I noticed that uh, Concord, New Hampshire, they're doing something for it. I think you'll find dozens and dozens of these Young Eagle events around the country on June 9th. Yes, that's absolutely uh, true. If you need help finding one, contact the youngeagles.org folks. Steve Buse will help you out. Yep, that's right. And uh, I wanted to put a personal plug into one of the EAA chapters that I've been involved with, which is the uh, Concord chapter, Concord, New Hampshire. And uh, uh, again, because What's my that notes... chapter number? Yeah, you will see my notes have disappeared into the ether here. So um, um, I'm going to invite uh... people to go on the web and uh, and go to the EAA site or the Young Eagle site and look up Concord, New Hampshire, or give a call to the FBO up there. But uh, they are doing it on June 9th at 9 a.m. And uh, uh, they're certainly looking for pilots to help out. And if you are just an aviation enthusiast, and you've got some kids in your life that want to go for a ride up in the Concord area and get in touch with those guys, too. It's, uh, uh, I want to say, no, I'm not going to say the number because I'll get it wrong, but it's Concord, New Hampshire, and uh, the EAA chapter up there. <laughs> and what if you have, uh, you know, a youngster, maybe you're not involved, just, but what if somebody's listening and has a youngster that they would like to get a Young Eagles ride? How, do they, how can they arrange that? Well, they want to contact, um, you know, they, they, they one way Same is way to... Same way that they go if they wanted to fly. You contact the local organization. If you don't know the local chapter, then uh, you can find that out from the folks at uh, the Experimental Aircraft Association up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. They will be glad to point you in the right direction of a local Young Eagles event for either flying kids or getting a kid a flight. That's right. Great. And the parents, the parents, you almost always, the parents can't go along on the ride, but the parents do, of course, have to go along to the airport to uh, give the right permissions and all that kind of thing. So, uh, um, but if you get in touch with the chapter in advance, they'll explain to you what their procedure is. What's next? Um, I, I, I as an aside, you let me say me. that the uh, the quality is not as good as we're used to, but it sounds like it's passable. So why don't we continue? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think so. Motor, All right. Motoring. Dave, you posted this one to the list. I saw this story, and then you went ahead and posted it to the list. It's a really cool story um, about the uh, the Cirrus first flight. Yeah. You, you, you know, know what I'm talking about here? It, 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 it's, yeah, I absolutely do. Is is uh, our friend up there, uh, Kate? The, the uh, PR person and communications person at Cirrus Aircraft uh, put it in her email. Uh, sometimes you get to do something really great in aviation, and you know, kind of in in, in sequence with the Young Eagles conversation, uh, the folks up at Cirrus Design Corp up in Duluth uh, helped fulfill a birthday wish of a lady that had been wanting to go for a little airplane ride for 30 years. She'd never been up in, her, in an airplane, period. So they took her up 
put her in the left seat of an SR-22. Uh, I believe Dale Klapmeyer himself, who was a guest on our program from Sun and Fun, uh, did some of the pilot chores. Uh, what makes this notable, more notable than the usual uh, taking somebody for their first airplane ride story is that uh, the lady, Rosemarie Schultz, turns 104 years old wow. on May 20th. Wow. On May Fabulous. 9, when, 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 when she got her ride from the Cirrus folks on May 9, she was already several months older than aviation itself. Powered aviation. Powered aviation. Powered yeah, we don't want aviation. to make her older than the Montgolfier brothers. That's very cool. Um, we'll, put a, we'll put a link in our show notes uh, to the story. Uh, there's, there's a couple of cool pictures as one of her sitting. They actually let her sit in the left seat, although she declined the opportunity to actually control the aircraft. But, uh, but she was in the left seat. It shows her uh, through the window you know, while they're still on the, on the ramp, uh, wearing the headphones, you know, and, the, and that is very uh, cool. looking adorable. That is very and, uh, cool. It's very, very cool. Uh, it, it, and I only hope that I have that kind of enthusiasm in going out and discovering new things when I'm 104. Well, I think we need to start the Old Eagles Day. Going. <laughs> there you go. There you, that's not a bad well, idea, it, actually. Re reading that whole story flashed me back to about uh, 12 years ago, This uh, coming up this Labor Day weekend, when uh, Annie and I snuck out to uh, Leesburg, Virginia, in the little Cherokee that we owned at the time, and surprised my wife, Annie's mother and father, and one of her brothers by showing up on a weekend when they thought we were going to be hanging around Kansas all weekend. We'd just gotten the airplane, just gotten the license. We were spreading our wings, went from Wichita to Louisville, overnighted with my family, then on to Leesburg. And I got to take on that weekend trip my mother-in-law, yeah. who was about 74 at the time, 73, up in her first ride in a little airplane. And she was just in awe of everything. Can we go over there? She went around Sugarloaf. We flew up by Frederick, out by Harper's Ferry. Uh, there was no ADIS to, to worry about there in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Uh, Leesburg's non-towered, and you can squeak in and out under the uh, Dulles class Bravo rings there. Uh, she was just, she didn't stop gushing for days, and it all came back Great. to me. Uh, reading about Rosemary Schultz. So, way to go, Cirrus Design. I mean, gee, many. 30 years, wanting to do this for 30 years. That means that she started wanting to do this when she was 74. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just an amazing about story. delayed gratification. And, and a lot of kudos to uh, to Cirrus uh, for taking this on and, and making it happen and, and uh, certainly brightening at least uh, uh, one woman's day. And I think brightening uh, ours and, and our listeners also. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, it's less one of the great privileges of having a pilot's license is being able to take people up mm -hmm. on their first airplane rides or their second airplane rides, for that matter. Yeah, James, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say another a wonderful lesson for all of us. Uh, just about it's never, as they say, it's never too late as long as you're breathing to do something you want to do. And anybody out there who knows somebody who's been thinking about getting up in an airplane, do what you can to help them out. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely. There you go. Absolutely. If Let's see now learning, what's next here. So we uh, we're still trying to catch up with our listener feedback. Um, now, but here's the 
not the bad news, this is great news, but the sort of the little speed bump here is that this past week we received more new listener, listener feedback than we were able to cover last week, which means we ha and started out the week with more than, than a week ago. But we're going to keep digging it, we're going to keep plugging away at this stuff because it's great stuff and we love to hear mm -hmm. from people. Um, we, uh, we actually had a couple of uh, pieces of audio feedback that I'm going to have to skip over today because of the technical problems we're having, but uh, we'll have an audio feedback. Uh, uh, jamboree next week or the week after <laughs> when things get working again. Uh, next is uh, another uh, from a from a younger pilot. Uh, he, he called himself Captain Matt, so we're going to call him Captain Matt. Captain Matt from Mississippi. <laughs> and Captain Matt wrote us a nice uh, email. We've posted the full text of the email in our uh, Uncontrolled Airspace blog. You can go take a look at it. Um, to kind of summarize it, uh, uh, Matt is a 20-year-old student pilot, uh, and he's about to enter the flight operations program at Delta State University. Uh, so he's uh, he's well on his way to Go a for it, Captain uh, Matt. to a life of flying. Um, cool story, though. I mean, and even it's all his grandfather's fault. Even yeah. more cool part of the story is that he was introduced to aviation by his grandfather, who bought uh, a 172 the year that Matt was born, and started taking Matt and his brothers for flying. Um, but Matt was the only one of the family who really kind of uh, kept on liking it and really wanting to get involved with it and so he's been flying with his grandfather ever since his grandfather really got the bug too his grandfather uh, actually went out of his way to buy a piece of property down the road from where he lived and created a private grass strip uh, where he uh, maintains a couple of different airplanes and an ultralight and uh, Matt sent us some really cool pictures I have to send an email back to Matt um, or if Matt if you're listening we just want to make sure we have your permission we'd like to put those pictures on the uh, on the website so that we can share them with other people there's some cool pictures there of his grandfather's grass strip also Matt's been tagging along with uh, with another person in his community that uh, is one of the airplane salvage people who goes out and recovers uh, wrecked airplanes um, which is kind of a sad situation, but somewhat fascinating in, a, in an odd kind of way. And Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, and uh, well, I, go ahead, James. You, well, it just struck me, this is the, the kind of thing that, that makes my heart uh, kind of beat with pride about being involved in aviation. Some, uh, a person like Matt, first of all, 20, and he anoints himself captain. <laughs> <laughs> And it seems well-deserved. Uh, again, he seems like he was born with Avgas running through his veins. Uh, you know, of the three kids, he was the only wow, one who really some... liked aviation, kept up with it, going out with the salvage people, and pointed out that while it was sad to kind of come up across these wrecks, it was educational because he would find out about the essentially the pilot error that would lead to so many of these. And as he proceeds in his aviation career it, it, this is a guy that's going to do great things I think and and bring the sum total of all the learning that he accumulates to every flight he makes absolutely yeah, very cool so Matt stay in touch well, way with to us. go Matt congratulations yep. keep at it bud and let us yeah. know if we have permission to use your pictures on the website because we'd like to share them with people or if you've put them on the web someplace we'll point to them Next is uh, an email we got from Philip from Texas. And again, the full text of this one is in our blog at uncontrolledairspace.com. Philip wrote about uh, a couple of different things. Uh, he was going back through some of our old episodes and uh, was talking, was remembering when we talked about our experiences watching Bob Hoover, the great air show pilot, or the great pilot, and in particular air show pilot. And uh, Philip was uh, telling us uh, about, uh, and I, we all knew about this, of course, but he was reminding us that uh, Bob has a great uh, 
autobiography called Forever Flying. Um, it is a good book, yeah. That uh, Philip had just yeah, finished reading and liked a lot. And so if you want to learn more about Bob Hoover, um, you can check out his uh, autobiography. I believe it's an autobiography, right? He wrote it is an autobiography. Forever I, you know, Flying. Well, it might be, you know... Uh, um, written with someone. Written but. with somebody. And and the other thing to keep, keep in mind is, uh, I'm not sure about Sun and Fun, but every year at Oshkosh, uh, Mr. Hoover is has a booth uh, in one of the uh, uh, exhibit hangers, vendor hangers, and he'll he'll sign autographed copies of that book for you. Yeah, and I uh, for I don't know if this is does he still do a forum? I don't know. I know I think for, he does. I think he does. Bob, and it, Bob's, an, Bob's an extremely gracious and mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and approachable. Approachable. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, a fascinating uh, forum. I haven't had a chance to hear it in quite in a, in a few years now. But if he's still up to doing his forum at uh, Air Venture, you should go check it out because he's got a, a lot of great great stories. And, uh, uh, and he's not hard to pick out of a crowd. No, no. Tall, lean, mm -hmm. usually a white straw skimmer uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. and a, a light colored suit and a white mustache. If so, you right. see if you see him, you'll recognize him. That's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Philip from Texas also went on to uh, encourage us to keep up the good work on the user fees story. Uh, he uh, uh, liked no that, problem. Uh, liked that we were uh, giving a lot of coverage to this, uh, kind of getting the word out so that people can make their feelings known on the subject of, of aviation user fees. Uh, and finally, uh, he kind of was, uh, again, patting us on the back. I don't, I don't want to go too deeply into this, but um, he pointed out to the, the fact that, that Uncontrolled Airspace is one of many aviation podcasts that he likes to listen to. And, and he urges people not to think in terms of picking the one that they like best and rejecting all the others. He's, he points out rightly that there are a lot of fascinating podcasts out there on, that have different forms and different subject matters and, and, and different personalities. And uh, he listens to a bunch of them, and he encourages everyone else to do that too. He made an interesting suggestion um, that when we go to Oshkosh uh, for Air Venture, that we not simply do a regular version of, of Uncontrolled Airspace, but that we try and kind of gather together some of the other aviation podcast people and do a group podcast, which is an that intriguing idea. And, very uh, intriguing, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, perhaps we would host that, or perhaps one of the other podcast folks would host that and invite us, which I think would be right. a nice way to do it too. So we would we'll, be drowning in testosterone, but I think that would be <laughs> We'll have to get well, Amy to come to by thin, and, and whip us into shape. There's a way shape. to thin that down. Yeah. That's right. There's a way to dilute that testosterone stuff. Yeah. So. Let's see now. Oh, uh, uh, another email. We're almost done here. Uh, this was a follow-up from Ted from Los Angeles, whose email we rent. I'm not sure if we did this last week or the week before, but you'll recall that Ted was a gentleman who challenged us to talk about the subject of uh, noise from small airplanes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yes. Um, and he just kind of gave us a little more feedback. He, he seemed a little surprised that we kind of read his email and, and went into so much detail on that. Um, and uh, he wanted to, to kind of get back to us and say there were a bunch of other things he liked about the podcast. Again, the, the full text of this one is in the blog. Um, and he did ask Dave to talk uh, at a little bit more length. Uh, Dave, you kind of as an aside mentioned that you had been involved uh, with, with uh, evaluating somehow a, a composite redesign of a Piper Comanche. Is that right? And, uh, That's right. I think subject that came up was uh, you asked Jeb and, and, and me what we were working on and and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, what I'd most recently been working on was a piece for Kit Lane's magazine about an aircraft known as the Raven 500. Uh, it's a South African kit design. Uh, there's 11 or 12 of them flying over there. I think it might be 12 now. Uh, there's one here in the U.S. Uh, it was built by the U.S. distributor and uh, 
Chad was interested in a little more detail and, and not to turn this into a pilot report, I'll give you the quick and dirty. Uh, it's all, all carbon fiber airframe. It's about 98% of the size of a regular Comanche uh, 260. Uh, same, well, the wing is a little different. The wing's a little more efficient than the original. Uh, virtually all the aftermarket speed mods that Comanche devotees lavish on their airplanes which are built into this aircraft. A uh, couple of differences, it has a fixed horizontal stabilizer instead of, and, and elevators instead of a full flying stabilator like the real Comanche. Uh, cabin door is on the left side instead of the right side like on virtually all Piper low wings. Interesting. Uh, it, it is a screamer. Uh, it will carry full fuel, a huge payload, basically full fuel, four seats and luggage. So it's almost and, a bonanza. <laughs> uh, except for that hundred, except for that hundred ninety knot plus part, yeah. And, so, uh, it, you know, if you throw a rope out to a bonanza, then it would the bonanza would be almost as good. Oh, these are fighting words. <laughs> what were you going to say, and, James? Oh, well, I was just so. Is this going to to be uh, a kit aircraft, or is this something that they are oh, hoping to get into production? Okay, it's a it's a kit, but the kit is delivered. In such a state of, uh, of of readiness, if you will, that it basically is the equivalent of a quick build kit from some of the other manufacturers. Uh, it really has a, a very low parts count in terms of the composite parts. Uh, all the metal comes with it. Uh, you can buy uh, a, a, an engine and prop, uh, like homing IO. Two IO five forty, it making two hundred and sixty horse, and a uh, uh, Lepresti prop for it that uh, has little speed spats on the back to paddles air into the induction system, helps raise the manifold pressure. Hmm. Uh, the uh, gear retraction systems all included. Uh, you'd probably be out in the neighborhood of uh, two hundred thousand to finish this aircraft out with a, a good IFR panel. And it'd be insane to finish this airplane out without a decent IFR panel on it, because yeah. mm -hmm. this is a get up and go like a bat out of hell. Oh, by the way, it's got enough fuel to go approximately 1,200 miles on, on, wow. on one load. It is almost a bonanza. <laughs> I have to say, ex except for being almost 20 knots faster. You're right. Put a turbo on a bonanza, and we'll talk. Yeah. We'll talk. Well, now, but now you're talking another forty grand, and put a turbo on this puppy, and you erase that. You know that bonanza is still looking at the at that rear position light, baby. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Anyway, it's the Raven 500. Uh, uh, the distributor's down at uh, Fort Lauderdale Exec. He's just cut a deal with the company to help do uh, builder assists work. Uh, it was in Kit Planes magazine about. Uh, Three months ago, and I apologize for not knowing the cover date off the top. They kind of run together, but you could probably find it on the Kit Planes website. And uh, send, send us an email if you need something else about it. Yeah. Well, a note about uh, Ted's original comments about what can we do to reduce noise. As you guys pointed out, it's more the propeller than the engine. Yeah. But if you've got a controllable a variable pitch prop, uh, there is nothing that says you've got to run at full RPM depending on where you're taking off from. If you've got sufficient runway 
you know, if, if it spins, uh, you know, 2,700 RPM, nothing says you can't dial it down to 2,500 RPM and even maybe reduce a little bit of power, you know, obviously use your situation, your airport, but you don't have to have everything, you know, balls to the wall every time you take off. These airplanes, especially if you're by yourself or, you know, you got a four-place, you're by yourself or one other person, you, you really don't need that full power to get off the ground. Well, that's, well, that's some true. Of the newer generation yeah. props are really quieter yeah. than the stuff that was around when most of our airplanes were made. Yeah. Uh, and I, I won't go back through that except to, re to, to remember that. Re regarding James's point, uh, that, that's true to an extent. And of course, turbine aircraft um, um, frequently, uh, and I don't, I, I'm not rated or typed or anything like that in, in a pure turbojet, but. Uh, uh, some some mini turbojets anyway frequently use less than uh, uh, the full thrust available just simply because they don't need to depending on the runway and the airport conditions. With a piston, it is a little different. Um, using using less than maximum power is certainly allowed uh, depending on conditions. Uh, there is a school of thought, uh, however, that says uh, you might be doing more harm than good to the engine. It, uh, when, when you use less than full power in a takeoff and initial climb situation, it's it's all a balancing act, though. And uh, uh, now, what would be harmful the, to the uh, engine? The, the most engines are set up, whether through carburation or fuel injection systems, uh, to go a little bit richer on the fuel flow at full throttle and full power. In other words, uh, uh, all the all the controls forward. Um, that helps cool the engine, especially in a low airspeed, high angle of attack situation. Well, um, I would leave the mixture. I, yeah, no, well, the mixture control has it doesn't have that much to do with it per se, as does the throttle uh, controller. Mm. The the, the, uh, the with an injected engine, for example, the, the fuel controller would would add a little bit more gas uh, to the mixture or to the. Uh, uh, to the cylinders, same thing would be true with uh, uh, many carbureted engines. Um, the punchline is, yes, you can certainly use uh, less than full power. You have to perhaps pay even more attention to engine cooling, CHTs, uh, oil right pressure, oil temp, things like that. And of course, don't try that on a short strip. Right. Well, yeah. And there's uh, in the uh, in the Comanche we used to have. One one area that I frequently flew through was a little on the noise sensitive side, and they had uh -huh. science about it. And my usual drill there was uh, wide open throttle, full RPM, uh, and a short field takeoff technique. Right. Then a maximum angle of climb. Get some altitude. Until I got to the departure end of the runway. Mm -hmm. Then spool the RPM back to 2,500 RPM, right. leaving the throttle all the way in. Uh, as I was going over the noise sensitive area at the highest altitude I could gain in that in, in that distance, and uh, uh, you know I don't have any way of, of gauging what the microphones on the ground were picking up, but I know in the cabin it got a whole lot quieter when I went from 2,700 to 2,500 sure. RPM, yeah. and I was all but basically above pattern altitude by the time I crossed the, the uh, end of the uh, runway. So uh, anything to be a little sensitive. Yeah, any, anything anything helps, and uh, uh, the, the short field uh, uh, technique that Dave uh, describes is a good one. Again, 
you know, runway and, and airplane performance allowing. Do do these sorts of power chain power setting changes during climb in any way aggravate the possibility of an engine failure during that period? There's a school of thought that says uh, an engine failure is most likely to occur uh, during or on the occasion of the first power reduction after takeoff. Yeah. Um, but are there any stats there about ever that? been anything that really proved that? I mean, that's that to me has always been uh, you know the realm of old wives' tales. I, I think it comes yeah. in the, the old wives' tales uh, situation also. I think it's more of a coincidence than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, the airplane. If you're going to make the first, if you go to the first power reduction, uh, uh, the engine's uh, probably been, you know, thrashing itself uh, here for a couple, three minutes, and it's probably ready to fail anyway. Yeah, and I suppose when you stop and think about it, mo most of the time, if you're going to have a power, f if you're going to have an engine failure during the climb out, it is by definition the first power reduction. Um, <laughs> so that will skew the statistics. First and last. That will sort of skew the statistics right there. One, one thing also to keep in mind with with any engine that is not turbo normalized or not, or not turbocharged, once you start climbing that engine, uh, it's, be losing it's, power. That, its power is reduced each each foot that you climb simply because it's rated at its maximum power at sea level on a standard day. So if you're at Leadville, Colorado, uh, well that's not that's not a that's not a good example. Oh, it's, if it's, you're it's, at a sea level a, airport Augusta, Kansas. Yeah, if you're at a sea level make, airport. Make in Augusta, Kansas on a hundred degree day on, on and the altitude day. goes from thirteen hundred feet field elevation to right. about four thousand feet. Right. So all, right away if you go and if you go to that airplane's uh, performance charts and look at the four thousand foot uh, uh, maximum power percentage you can pull, uh, you're going to see that you're already way down from 100% power. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Only so, time I ever came close to inviting someone to leave my aircraft was uh, when I volunteered to give a, a, an elderly gentleman who used to fly and no longer flew a lift to the breakfast at Ponca City, Oklahoma one Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. And it was already... Is there a breakfast? It was, 7.30, <laughs> it was at 7.30 in the morning, and it was already about 85 degrees. And uh, I was doing my run-up, and I reached over the mixture knob and pulled the knob out until I saw 100 RPM gain on the tack. Uh -huh. And then it settled back down a little bit from the governor. Well old guy reached over and smacked me on the hand and, and said, didn't your flight instructor teach you better than to lean on the ground? And so I just pulled the knob all the way out to cut off, let the engine die, and I said, do you have any idea what the density altitude is today? We're at about 4,000 feet above sea level density altitude. I'd say we're not anywhere close to on the ground. If you do that again, I'm throwing you out of the airplane regardless of where we are. There, well, there, if I if I had been saying that, there would have been a a four letter word with an ing somewhere in there. Well, <laughs> it, it it might have gotten that rich, but yeah. the guy it, it was like he was hearing this for the first time. The guy was in his seventies, had been a pilot for thirty years, but had not been taught that you lean on the ground to offset the effect of high density altitude. Interesting. Well, maybe if he'd in my private oh. pilot training. Maybe if he'd only flown, you know, in northern latitudes at sea level, maybe the subject never came up. Yeah. Well, uh, that could be. Could be. But I, I got a, a Ponca City question here because I hearing about this this breakfast when I hear the podcast, Dave. I thought that that isn't that a Mexican restaurant there at Ponca City. 
Well, that's my... Enrique's. Enrique's is a Mexican restaurant in the airport terminal there. Yeah. The city. Designator is uh, Kilo Papa November Charlie. Papa November Charlie. Uh, PNC. Uh, it's got an ILS. Uh, I think the runway's out to uh, 6,000 plus now. They were extending it the last time I was down there. Enrique serves a hot. great Mexican dinner, lunch. Because I've been uh, there for lunch. Open six days a week. So. We're going to go there one of these days. Hey, so yeah. listen, just to put a cap on this whole discussion of, uh, of uh, noise reduction procedures, I um, want to remind everyone that although it's, uh, it's a good idea, to, it's, you know, it's kind of a, a noble cause to try and uh, you know, reduce your noise footprint on the ground, but before you start experimenting with any of these power reduction techniques that we've been talking about, you really want to dig into your, uh, your airplane manual or talk right. to your mechanics mm -hmm. or, or your CFIs or talk to people in the know and make sure that you're not like, you know, we, we're not encouraging anybody to be a test pilot here. Uh, exactly so, uh, right. Yeah. Let's uh, talk with some use people. Use your best judgment. That's especially, right. Your best judgment. You know, especially talk with some people who have done this before, like a type club or uh, uh, a local flight instructor who's familiar with your type of aircraft before uh, going out and, and uh, trying to emulate Chuck Yeager. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One last uh, one last email we got here, and this one actually could be the the meat for a fairly good discussion. Um, this is from uh, Richard from California. Uh, once again, he sent us quite a long he's email. This below. What's that? He's written he's written us before. That's right. Yeah, and uh, um, so uh, the full text of his email is again is in the blog. Um, but just to kind of summarize some of the high points here, um, he was saying he was enjoying the discussion that we were having a few episodes back about uh, the question of uh, retract versus fixed gear aircraft for low time pilots. Um, he specifically was asking. I'll read a little bit of his email. He says, "I have." He says, "I only." He says, "I have 72 hours. I learned to fly in a Beach Skipper, a BE-77. I have most of my hours in that make model. The rest of my time is in a 1964, a 1970, and a 1999 Cessna 172. Maybe it's because I learned on the Skipper, but for a number of reasons that I won't go into here, I like the Skipper much better than any of the Cessnas." After eliminating a number of uh, aircraft for reasons of range, performance, price, etc., I've decided to search for an IFR-equipped 1970 or later Cherokee or Beach Sundowner. And then he talks a little bit, um, he actually went out and priced the relative uh, insurance costs for a pilot of his time of a, of a Mooney versus the Sundowner. And uh, it was somewhat dramatic, as you might imagine. And, yeah. uh, and so he wondered well, if we just had any... between about six about $600 a year for him to be insured in the fixed gear airplane versus more than 2000 a year at his limited experience level to be right. insured in the uh, retractable. Right. And he would only get that... If he agreed to 25 hours of dual, I believe it was, and then 15 hours of solo mm -hmm. before carrying cash. Or I think it was 15, 15 15 and 10. 15 and 10. And that's. 15 and 10. I'm sorry. Uh, I missed there's, there's two reasons for that. One is he's got all the time in a skipper, A. Yep. B, uh, he has no retract time and uh, uh, no constant speed time, apparently, no, no high performance complex time, et cetera. So that, that's the, one of the reasons, anyway. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be in profess to be an expert on uh, how aviation insurance companies price their products, but uh, uh, that's one of the, the hurdles that he's facing in trying to, shall we say, move up from a fixed gear, uh, uh, fixed pitch uh, trainer. Well, under what well, circumstance? If I may say, it, yeah, yeah, James, tell you, you're the Mooney guy here. What, you, do you yeah. have any insights well, yeah, on this? Uh, well, yeah. I, I think I, I might have something to add here. I, when I bought my first Mooney, I'm on my second now, I had uh, only flown one once 
took the uh, the one that I did uh, uh, buy, and I also had to get uh, ten hours of dual instruction just to get insurance. And my first flight out to pick that up after buying the aircraft and having identified someone to kind of do the work that was needed. He came and picked me up at uh, Washington National Airport. So that's the first flight I took in, in my that's cool. first airplane was coming out of Washington National, which was quite a thrill. Cool. Uh, cool. But let me back up for a second here where he had said the only way to, to he thinks, to kind of get more time is to buy, to buy a plane to take on some small business trip on business trips and that I would be a little concerned with that uh, nothing matter with buying a plane even if you're just going to put a few hours and it's a wonderful wonderful addition to one's life but uh, buying a plane to go to business on particularly if he, uh, he's not instrument rated uh, it could be an invitation to a little unpleasantness because there are going to be times when you're depending okay I'm going to use my airplane to go and fly in this business meeting the weather could be bad on the going to it or coming back there may be the temptation that's a to very very good point James uh, yeah, it's something to, that we kind of glossed over here uh, well, so is, but James at continue the same time I mean if he's if he's talking about trips where gee I, I, I usually drive three hours but I can fly one uh, yes you know, as long as you know, really I just not think the same level of risk of saying, "Well, I got a business appointment. Uh, I'm 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 in uh, I'm in uh, California. I got a business appointment in Denver, and I'm going to fly myself out there and back." Uh, you know, you got to grow these things by stages. Yeah, uh, sure, but James, go ahead. James. I mean, I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure where in California he is from, but there are a lot of mountains in California too, so there are some extra hazards with with that. And uh, it's one thing to, I, I just think that one should kind of have a good idea of what they're going to do and how they're going to use the airplane and to kind of set it up to justify it that you're going to use it for business. Uh -huh. Maybe you should think about, well, there are going to be some trips that I could take, but, you know, I, I'm going to be happy if I can also just get up and, and you know, go somewhere on a good day. There, there, yeah, there's uh, there's two two or three things going on here. First, first off, uh, uh, a lot of admiration uh, uh, to our writer here for for wanting to to acquire a, a personal airplane and use Definitely. it uh, for for business reasons. Use it for personal transportation, essentially. Um, with 77 hours uh, or 72 hours, excuse me, uh, total time, uh, it's especially ambitious, I think, on his part. Um, I've got something on the order of 2,500 hours. Uh, I haven't totaled up my logbook lately. Uh, I'm instrument rated. i got a commercial ticket. I've been doing this for more than 30 years. And I would not presume to be able to keep a schedule, um, a tight schedule, let me put it that way, me and my airplane. And I'm, you know, the only things that really scare me are ice and thunderstorms. But I would not presume to keep a very tight schedule, even with my level of experience and familiarity with the airplane. Um, one has to keep in mind that there will always be situations of involving weather, involving mechanical uh, uh, condition of the airplane, involving fatigue, involving time of day, etc., that simply mean that you need to walk, sleep, or par otherwise park the airplane uh, because you should not be flying. 
it's mm -hmm. one it's one thing to to use the airplane for personal transportation, but it's quite another to try to do it on a very closely uh, uh, close tolerance schedule. You have to remain flexible. You have to uh, think about well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out to Wichita or I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Atlanta. Um, uh, I need to be there, you know, at noon tomorrow. Should I leave tonight? Should I leave first thing in the morning? Which is going to be the better uh, uh, part, uh, uh, better way to get there based on how I feel and what the weather looks like and, and variables like that. Yeah. Um, so I, and, that's, that's all stuff that he's going to learn, though. Well, I it's mean, all stuff that he's going to learn. learn by necessity. But he's not going to learn it with 70, at 72 hours. He's not going to learn it till he gets maybe 150 hours. And I'm, I'm kind of concerned about what's going to happen in the meantime. And I think well, he just needs to, to kind of, you know, be aware of that and think, okay, there may be some business trips, but there's a reason we have the expression, time to spare, go by air. Right. And, 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 this, and this gentleman may be and Jeb, cognizant of all of this mm -hmm. um, and, and, and have a good mentor and flight instructor and other people who are, who are pilots and, and helping him you know, get into this. But I, I just feel constrained to point some of this out and just on the off chance that he doesn't have someone around him saying these things to him. Yeah. Okay. Well, Richard, I agree. And go ahead, James. And, and so we could proceed now to his perhaps his to, to Mooney his versus yeah. Sundowner, uh, and of course, right. being a Mooney guy, there to me there there's no comparison. Uh, you know, people who. I I hear some potentially dissenting voices in the background. And <laughs> big time, big time. Certainly, we'll be able to address that. Now we don't know. We don't know if if Richard's a, a big guy, if he's a compact guy. I can tell you that Moonies are larger on the inside than a lot of people realize. Moonies have a lot of. Uh, they don't carry a lot of baggage, but they come with a lot of baggage from uh, misinformation that's been promulgated by people who don't know them. <laughs> Uh, they are surprisingly roomy inside. Uh, if they're a little tighter than some other aircraft, well, you usually don't spend as much time in them because they're a heck of a lot faster. They get you where you're going faster. They are very docile. Uh, that You do have to watch out, have good control on your airspeed during approach and landing because that's kind of where they will bite you the most. If you have, try land it too fast, they're going to porpoise, uh -huh. but the airspeed is easy to control. I know that there are uh, Mooney shops out there that maybe are putting in speed brakes in 201s and in E models and F models. You don't need them. You can learn to control the power. It's, it's a pilot and, technique thing. If you stay if you stay far enough ahead of the airplane, you don't need the speed brakes, and, and mm -hmm. people have been doing that for years. Uh, it just takes a little bit of planning, a little bit of experience, and it's something exactly. you in five hours of, of operating the airplane. And the boogaboo about retractable, you know, is this dangerous? I, I'm always think back to like World War II when we were putting 18 year old kids, right. you know, in in huge bombers that had no flight time. If they made got to 200 hours, they could, were considered high time. They're they're flying multi-engine aircraft with less equipment than we have, so they had to, to be a lot more on the case. So I think there is really. The retractable bugaboo is is just that, and the earlier you start flying a retract, the less chance you're going to have of forgetting to put the gear down when you're, you know, going to be landing the thing. Yeah. And and the less okay. the, the less you fly other types of airplanes, 
once you acquire your own airplane or, or uh, fly the, the, a specific type of airplane for a number of hours, um, the less you fly other types, the fewer mistakes you're going to be making. That's right. So Richard, I will now Richard, quiet down for the dissenting voices right now. <laughs> well, so a couple of a, a couple of from Wichita, a couple of dissents. A couple of dissents. First off, <clears throat> all the stuff that uh, that uh, Jack and and uh, and James and um, James and Jeb were talking about in their concerns about using your airplane on business. Absolutely correct, but don't let them discourage you. First off, no, you'll, we learn, just, you'll no, learn faster, I, and, and, you'll and, learn better, get, you'll fly more often, you'll be more satisfied getting your own airplane and going out and do it. Now, we did it agreed. backward. We bought an airplane and got the license in the airplane. So I had <laughs> had no license when we bought an airplane, and it made getting the license a boatload easier because it was never a scheduling issue. Let me ask you Second, this. Let me ask you this, though, David. What was your insurance tab like without a, uh, just a student <laughs> pilot ticket? As a student pilot with a Cherokee 140 worth 20 grand and fixed gear, uh, I think I was paying six, seven hundred bucks a year. Did it go down after you got your? Oh, ticket? I'm sorry, I was paying almost a thousand a year, and it went down every year uh -huh. that I had the airplane. Okay, that's that's an excellent uh, data point. It was about seven hundred a year when we bought the. Comanche, uh -huh. and it went up to 2100 a year uh -huh. because I was very yeah. low time retract. But by the time I sold the Comanche, I was back down to about 1100 bucks a year. Right. So, right. time and type, instrument rating, 500 hours accident free, 1000 hours, 1500 hours, you get a break on all those. Right. But I think Richard explained to us that he's already done a fairly decent job of identifying his mission mm -hmm. and identifying what fits his budget, which is where the Cherokee or Sundowner came from. Mooney's a nice airplane. Uh, I love Mooney's. I've come close to buying them myself. Uh, I needed more luggage space. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all those cameras. Uh, the cameras, yeah. and uh, you know, I regularly carry the bride with me and her luggage, and uh, and we took a couple of trips where we actually had four people in luggage. Uh, we mm. relied on fuel, so I'm not even going to go into that. Uh, when you're looking at IFR-equipped Cherokees and Sundowners, my biggest suggestion for you is to pay close attention to the engines. Uh, the uh, Sundowner, if I remember correctly, well, there I is know a, the, there is the a model Musketeer yeah. had a really oddball it was an Continental o, engine. It was an O346 or something like that. It yeah. was an oddball engine. It was a Lycoming, actually, I believe. Uh, it was an oddball engine. Um, that's a... It had uh, an obscenely a low fairly, GBO time right, and an obscenely High parts, high rebuild cost. Yeah, the, the overhaul costs are, are pretty exorbitant. The uh, the trick is that um, uh, that's uh, I believe an early model Musketeer, uh, yeah. and it and does differ from the Sundowner model that our our rider was considering. Uh, I don't think there are too many of them out there anymore, and uh, it certainly it, it, with any uh, uh, purchase uh, contemplating a, whether it's a Musketeer or a 727. Uh, you want to try to talk to people who have owned the type and go to a type club and, and things right. like that to learn more about the various quirks that airplane has. This is a great example yeah. of why you want to do that. Yeah. Well, listen, it's guys, we're starting to. Cherokee owner. Go ahead, Dave. Former Cherokee owner. Just I'll close out on this. Uh, there are way more Cherokees than there are Sundowners. That's right. First off, you're probably going to be able to get a newer airplane for less money. 
uh, and there's a tremendous support network. Spare parts are very reasonable, and a lot of aftermarket support mm -hmm. uh, in, in terms of upgrade speed mods and conversions that you can do. Uh, and I noticed that you, you ask about why would they uh, only put one door in pipers yeah. and and, yeah. and, air, and beaches like the Musketeer or the Sundowner. Well, actually, the Musketeer had two doors. That's right. Uh, so the Cher Cherokee. And uh, and and the uh, the uh, Sundowner, uh, well, you know, there's manufacturing costs to consider. That's right. Uh, structural integrity is a little easier to assure when you don't have a second door frame in there. Uh, you know, that all adds up to money. Uh, and you can find two door low wing airplanes like the Commander uh, and uh, Cirrus, Beach Muscular <coughs> Cirrus. Uh, so they're they're out there. Cicada. In, the, in this Good market, in, this, in in the in the price range and the type that you're looking at, uh, I sure wouldn't let the uh, single door dissuade you. Yeah. Uh, you can get extra vent windows in the door window and the pilot window that'll add to your fresh air, uh, or you can just you know stand behind guys like Jeb and me talking, and that'll. <laughs> <laughs> couple gonna, of other things. Yeah, quickly, because we're, we're kind of reaching the end of our allotted time here, but go ahead, uh, Joe. Uh, um, Richard specifically asked about sundowners and beach uh, support and parts availability and that kind of thing vis-a-vis -vis Bonanzas. Uh, let me respond. First of all, um, beach um, parts, in my, uh, his, my experience, have been available. Uh, they have been uh, pricey. Um, and uh, there have been a couple of examples, and keeping in mind that my airplane is a 1966 model, keeping further in mind that uh, the serial number of mine is, is falls into kind of a never-never land uh, where they were transitioning a few models from one configuration to another. The only real problem I have had uh, was getting a replacement fairing for my dorsal fin. And uh, uh, <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, I I could not get the, the the dorsal I had was made out of some cheap plastic and uh, had you know some hundred knot tape holding it together and and it was not a pretty thing. Um, Raytheon, uh, when it was Raytheon, it's now a different company. Keeping in mind, uh, Hawker Beechcraft. Ha it's Hawker Beechcraft now. So all this is is uh, anecdotal for for lack of a better description. <clears throat> but uh, not only did they not stock this particular dorsal fin fairing, um, they could not tell me uh, when they would be able to supply one. Uh, after some scoping around and talking to some other people, I found a company in, uh, I believe, Montana or Wyoming who made me, uh, from scratch, a fiberglass copy of my old fairing with all the holes already drilled, primed, ready to paint, for not much money, uh, and uh, that fairing, that particular part, is an owner-produced part under the FARs, and is now very happy on my airplane. Has been on my airplane for six, eight years, and uh, there is no crack whatsoever in it. I'm, I'm very happy. So, there, there just, are just to give you a, a graphic on what his old tail <laughs> fairing was like. It had enough stop drill holes in it that we. We're using it to drain pasta. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> one one final thought from here uh, regarding his question, uh, Richard's question about any other advice for for uh, Richard or anyone searching for their first aircraft. I don't know your financial situation, Richard, but if you're out there, 
have your financing in place before you start looking. Good right. airplanes are hard to find, and when they're found, they go. So you want to be able to have all of that lined up so when you find the airplane you want, you can say it's a done deal. That's Here's right. the bank. They're ready to loan the money. Let's go. That's right. That's and right. Richard, there's an organization called the National Aircraft Finance Association through which you can find a, a, a wide range of finance companies uh, and both uh, our favorite uh, pilot groups, EAA and AOPA, both have finance options available to you if you're a member of either of those. And you don't have to be building an airplane to qualify for EAAs. Uh, but uh, at National Aircraft Finance Association, you can find them on the web. Uh, they can help you narrow it down. And the bank doesn't need to be where you can drive to it. And sure. one That's final thing. By fax, Federal Express, email. Yeah, there's, there's about a half a dozen final things here, but go ahead, James. Yeah. Do it. Buy <laughs> yeah. the airplane. Yeah. It, it is not like a boat where the happiest day, you know, the second happiest day you buy it and the, the first happiest day you sell it. You will love your airplane. There, I, I feel it has added so much to my life. Everybody I know who has an airplane feels the same way about it. You only go around Come once, on, so my advice do it, and you're gonna, David. You're gonna have another plane yeah, before too long. It's, I'm not, sure. it's not long. Absolutely. It's not long at all, Dave. Yeah. Um, I, I, one, one other. One more final as as, thing. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, one more final thought. <laughs> this is like uh, this is it. Uh, but I'm gonna mute everybody else. One more else. final thought. Delta. You know, we're gonna go to Charlie, and then we'll go to Brian. <laughs> uh, um, is as far as the aircraft types uh, that Richard is looking at. Um, the, the the Sundowner, the the Sierra, those are all very good airplanes. They're 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 compared to a Cherokee, uh, they're relatively slower, okay. Um, relatively they, roomier. Relatively roomier, um, and which is one of the reasons they're slower. slower uh, they right. they have a relatively less useful load than a similarly yeah. uh, powered uh, Cherokee, for example. Um, yeah, don't don't limit yourself to just Beach and Piper. Um, you could look at, and I, I realized that. You know, well, I was going to say um, Cessna. Although uh, he didn't like the 172s very much, Cessna also has uh, some other models. They have the 177 Cardinal, which I've always enjoyed as a roomy, uh, fairly efficient, uh, good cross-country airplane. It's stable. And it has two doors. You will it has two doors. You you, you will. It's, it's cantilevered wing, no stretch, but you will pay a premium for a cardinal compared to the same year Cherokee. You will. You will. Uh, you second, will. Uh, another another choice out there is the uh, Socata uh, um, fleet, uh, the Trinidad, Trinidad the Tobago. Uh, I forget the the other model that that is in that mix. Um, there's fixed gear. Tampico. Uh, Tampico. Thank you. Uh, fixed gear singles. Uh, the the Trinidad is a retractable gear single. Uh, those are good airplanes. The the factory still supports them very well. Uh, use a lot of although they're manufactured. They're still in production. They're still in production. Um, although the the uh, uh, airplanes are manufactured in France, they use a lot of U.S. built components, including the engines, instruments, etc. There, uh, Most there's important a, thing, man, find the one that fits you, that you like, that it's right. flies fits the way mission, you like. Fits your mission. Get a good pre-buy inspection on it. Uh, mm -hmm. Get a good checkout from an instructor who knows the airplane. Um, pay attention to what's going on for the first uh, few hours and enjoy. Yeah. 
Well, thank you to Amen. all of our listeners who have uh, sent in feedback and, and questions. This is great stuff, and uh, it really adds to the podcast, and we love hearing from everyone. Uh, hopefully, we'll work our way through the last of the backlog, um, if not next week, um, in the next two weeks. And uh, hopefully, people will you'll, you'll keep sending in new questions and new comments and uh, uh, give us more keep stuff. Keep adding to, to our here. backlog. We love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're running really long here, but there's one thing I really want to hear about. So uh, I'm going to kind of let this thing go on a little bit longer, and that is, uh, James, you just attended a kind of interesting aviation event. Um, you want to tell us about what, where you've just come back from? Yes, uh, it was. Uh, I went down yesterday. I went down actually the day before uh, down to Palm Beach, where Aviation Week was hosting their uh, VLJs and light jets forum on business models for achieving commercial viability and operational success. And uh, it it was they put uh, that on a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> it barely fits on the cover of uh, the program, but it was uh, I guess sold out. There were a couple of hundred people poning up about thirteen hundred bucks each to show up there for this. Uh, they went in the wrong business. Yeah, no. <laughs> James, are you well, in the market for a VLJ? Uh, I wish. But interestingly, they do. Now they're talking about uh, Sats Air is talking about uh, having a program for fractional buy-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, I think that's our plane that is looking at doing a, a fractional program with them. No, I went down because you know I'm doing some work with a business jet traveler, right, right. and they and they asked me to go down and and uh, scope it out, and a couple of other uh, friends of mine from that publication were down there. But I had and. Ayakabuchi from Dayjet. You had uh, Linear Air's uh, Bill Herp was there. Uh, Mike Stewart from Pogo Jet. Stephen Hanvey from Satsair. Uh, Paul Garney from uh, over the other side of uh, the Atlantic with Jetbird. And uh, there was just a tremendous amount of excitement. And one of the very interesting aspects of it is that everybody's kind of feeling their way forward. You have a tremendously brilliant people involved in this. Ed Ayakabuchi, yeah. you know, a, a, a high-tech pioneer who's been very successful and now trying to kind of create this new model with Dayjet. And uh, nobody is really there kind of, you know, they ask for a show of hands. Well, how many people think VLJs are going to be in flight departments in 10 years, in five years, in one year? How many people here hope to make some money out of VLJs? And uh, I'm not sure who the attendees were because they don't publish. I guess that's their uh their protocol there. They don't want people getting calls and whatnot, so they don't really say who is there. Uh, from the people who got up and asked questions, there were people in finance, there were FBO people, uh, but the you know the real attention was on the panelists talking about these various aspects of how these things are going to fit into the airspace. And uh, for one well, interest, another space. Well, they don't, obviously, and, and the big bugaboo about, you know, they won't be going into the hub air, you know, or some people worried it's going to overwhelm the, you know, the uh, the airspace because everybody's going to be going into the hub airports. Well, of course, VLJs, That's... for the most part, are going to stay away from there. But at the same time, we know there are other aspects of that. I fly when I'm based out of Caldwell, New Jersey, and I have to leave there on instruments. I have to get sequenced in. I'm not at a major hub airport, but I'm still dependent on getting sequenced into that airspace. Uh, and Ayakabuchi talked about how they're working with FAA already 
and working out plans and preferred routes and things. So from there, at the airports they're working out of, that they can get into that system with minimum disruption. And they report that he said all the FAA people he's been working with are you know really helpful and eager to make these things work. So it's so just I, again, and we hear an eclipse five arrival in the future. Well, they uh, Eclipse was there, and they said they were delivering numbers. I think fourteen or fifteen or sixteen this week. And of course, they're you know they're taking their their shots because they have been a little behind the curve in in what they said they would deliver when. But uh, I, I think we all want to see them succeed. It would be I think awful for VLJs and for their product to not do well, it would really send a chill, I think, to anybody who wanted to do anything bold and new and anybody who was willing to put up some money to help somebody else with vision do something like that. Yeah, I agree. So, James, uh, no, how would you keep coming back? Go they ahead, keep Dave. coming back. I was going to say, nothing's discouraged people from getting into this business yet. They just keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. James, how what, would you what, characterize the uh, the atmosphere down there? I mean, was it was it like raring to go, or were they still kind of reluctant? Oh, people, you no, know, the people there, uh, as I say, if you're putting up 1300 bucks to come there and listen to people and maybe pose a question or two, you are, are a believer and you want to see something happen. And so people are very excited about this. They don't know how it's all going to play out, but everybody is sure that it, this is going to play a role. When you look at the atmosphere in terms of what's happening with commercial aviation, and then you know, obviously that's kind of a, a dead end in many ways. And then you look at the technology that is enabling a, a small airframe to do and go and perform the way that we're seeing things evolve as we get this new technology in aircraft. I think everybody is just trying to figure out how it's going to work and, you know, who's going to take the first step and and uh, I guess right now we're waiting for the manufacturers to deliver the products because you've got, you know, Pogo's there and they're still not sure who they're going to buy planes from. They think Eclipse. We're, you know, Phenom's uh, going to be flight testing soon. Okay. Uh, Mustang okay. was there. They don't really quite fit in the what we're thinking of the VLJs because they're a little more expensive. Interestingly, Piper, they did not have, uh, no one from Piper was there. Uh, no one from Cirrus was there talking about the jet, mm -hmm. uh, and no one from Diamond. But as we look out on the horizon here, and not even the horizon, I guess halfway to the horizon, what is going on, it seems that uh, you know everybody's just waiting for the product to get there so that they can really see if their beliefs in human nature and human behavior and consumerist attitudes will indeed play out the way that they have staked their futures on. Mm -hmm. James, what does what does Eclipse say about uh, their their failure to meet some of their delivery goals? Uh, not much, just that you know there have been growing pains, and they realize it. Uh, a more pertinent question that someone raised was about well, what about maintenance for all these things? You know, you're going to be putting an awful lot of them out there, and from what you know, these air taxi operators are saying, they're going to be operating them you know, on the order of a hundred hours a month, which is right. more than, you know, business jets mostly, they're designed to fly about 800 hours a month. So the question is, how are you going to do that? And they, you know, Eclipse now is, is uh, they're not doing authorized service centers. They want to do the whole thing themselves. So they're right. setting up four in the United States now. They're in the right. process of that. 
and uh, they're hopeful that they can that they can well they express great optimism and confidence that they're going to be able to do all this but again they didn't have a lot to say about the delays I think the attitude of people there was look this is new this is a new technology of course there are going to be a, a couple of stumbling blocks right. but something you know one month two months three month delay in the grand scheme of things that's not a big deal that's sort of to be expected yeah. uh, and I, I know that uh, you're going to be treating some of these audio letters we had somebody asked about well they want to be in aviation but they don't want to be an airline pilot because they're going to be away all the time uh, the day jet example Ayakabuchi talked about that he has a stack of resumes they're looking for people minimum 3,000 hours total uh, and 500 hours of turbine and one of the things and he's got a huge stack and not just sort of green you know young up-and-comers but established and senior kind of people because he's saying look you're gonna be home every night that's our model you're gonna leave out of this airport and you're gonna be back here every night mm -hmm. so for people looking for how do I get in aviation and what are the models out there to have a career in it if the airlines are kind of a nowhere road this could be a way yeah. Well, corporate aviation in general has a, a, a major need for pilots. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, the way that they're expanding, they're, they're delivering more new jets every year than the old ones are being retired. So the fleets, they're, they're talking about a neighborhood of 10,000, 12,000 business jets over the next uh, 15 years uh, additional to what we've got now so there's going to be a lot of jobs out there and certainly these on-demand air taxi models would provide another good outlet for it so there's lots of ways to make a living in aviation as a pilot uh, and don't forget don't forget being a flight instructor uh, yeah. too, many, too many flight instructors use that position as a rung in the ladder to get to that airline job what we need are a few more instructors who are willing to to make that particular vocation their career. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's night freight, and there's uh, yeah, exactly right. as as you very, know, very, Jeff, very from flying. where you are right now. Yeah. Also interesting was the comments uh, from Sats Air, uh, Steve Hanvey, about the customer experience there. I mean, look, think of this: you've got people who are hiring a a Cirrus and a pilot to fly them on places that they you know they never have been in a little plane before mm -hmm. and he said certainly that the knowledge that there is a parachute is is tremendous in uh, calming the, the any fears that are out there of passengers but the people are saying you know hey I never knew I could travel this way I'm not going back in my car all these trips that they were driving hours and hours so I, I find that very hopeful for uh, you know for the future if we can just lick this user fee dragon yeah, that's right mm. speaking that's right. of yeah because we need to wrap this be up quiet there's stuff going on this week in the yeah. uh, in, in the Senate uh, and this won't get on in time for us to influence that but uh, just a quick reminder uh, there is legislation moving on both sides of Capitol right. Hill now and uh, the house uh, uh, learned be today. shy yeah, I learned today in one of the, uh, the presentations uh, here where I am in Scottsdale that the House now has plans to try to put its bill together by Memorial Day. That's like so, next week. Yeah. 
Um, oh, yeah. uh, any any last minute any minute last minute shout outs here? I wanted to uh, give a little reminder to our friends over at EAA and their wonderful podcast. We haven't talked about podcast of the week in a, in a while, but they continue to do uh, uh, episode after episode. They're up to number seven of EAA Avcast, and they're presenting a lot of interesting information, uh, helping us uh, think about and prepare for the summer's air venture. So if you're interested, go to eaa.org/podcast and listen to EAA Avcast. Uh, any other quick shout-outs before we finish this thing up? Nope, not one, for me. One quickie. One yes. quickie. Uh, we've got the link that will be in the show notes. But an organization called the Red Tail Project is having a uh, special dinner with the uh, some survivors of the Tuskegee Airmen uh, up in Minnesota on June 6th. You can find the link on our site. Uh, if you're in the neighborhood, uh, you can uh, meet a piece of history there, help contribute to a good cause, the good cause being the restoration of a very rare P-51C model like the Tuskegee Airmen flew out of North Africa in World War II. So that's, that's right. my shout-out. Okay. And James, any quick shout-out before we finish up here? No, just to you guys. Thanks so much. I always love oh, uh, coming in the hangar with you guys and, and uh, you know, shoot the breeze. Well, we love having you join us. That's and uh, and uh, I'm I want to see Richard that airplane. Yeah, that's right. There you so that's go. James Winbrandt. Uh, if you want to learn more about James, he doesn't actually have a web presence, but if you just Google his name, James Winbrandt, uh, you'll learn all kinds of. You can get a book about dentistry if you want, um, or about, <laughs> or lots of aviation-related stuff as well. Uh, and Dave Higdon, you want to learn more about Dave, you can go to DaveHigdon.com. And Jeb is at JebBurnside.com or AviationSafetyMagazine.com or AvWeb.com. And uh, I'm, I'm at JackHodgson.com. <laughs> and you can uh, visit all of us at the UncontrolledAirspace.com website, especially the blog, which is starting to become a real happening place. So uh, visit us there at UncontrolledAirspace.com. Thank you, guys. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, thank you to everyone who listened. We apologize for the Skype weirdness this week, but I think we pulled it off. And we'll talk to you all again next time. Hey. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things pain. Hey. Son, be a dentist. People will pay you to be inhumane. Your temperament's wrong for the priesthood. And teaching would suit you still less. Son, be a dentist. You'll be a success. Here he is, girls. The